While you're doing that, can I just say you won't believe this, but this is the second time today I've heard that episode of Star Trek summarized in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Todd, uh, why are you living in an echo chamber? <laughs> I felt like it, it was like, oh, I heard someone else summarize a Star Trek episode and they were really proud of themselves for the summary. And then you started describing it and I was like, this is the same episode <laughs> for an entirely different purpose. <laughs> then he realized like anger was the way to beat the, the happy spore. Yeah. So he like. He, like, he yelled at a plant. And, 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 and he like fought Spock until Spock got angry. Oh my gosh. All right, hold on a second. Uh, studying it. Uh. I have serious concerns about this audio. I keep, I've, I'm just staring at this, <laughs> this thing that says critical error. <laughs> it's the same one that's been there the whole time. Quota exceeded error. Well, as long as it's been there the whole time. It shouldn't be anything different. I still see waves. <laughs> yeah, so... All right. But it's really disconcerting. <laughs> okay, Todd. Uh, yes. Well, here, let me segue back in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we're talking about the classic Christmas film, White Christmas. How's the Christmas season for you, Todd? Uh, it's really good. This is the most appropriate day that we could possibly talk about this film because it was the first snowfall of the year in yes. Cedar City. Did you get that too? Uh, we did as well. So <laughs> I have to tell you this. So this morning my son wakes up and he's like all groggy. This is my four-year-old. He's super groggy and kind of cranky. And I said, I said, Ian, run downstairs and get your, get your clothes on. You got to get dressed. And he said, oh, I'm tired. Oh. I said, go, go on and go get some warm clothes. And he said, I don't need warm clothes. It's not snowing outside. And I said, oh, Ian, go look out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and he went and peeked through the blinds. And then he just went completely ballistic. Like he was so, he was so excited. He's running around the house screaming at everybody. It was like pure joy. It was awesome. Well, like you said, that is a great reason for us to be talking about White Christmas. This movie was directed by Michael Curtis and written by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. It starred Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera Ellen. This, and those sound like it was released in 1954. I think we forgot that. It was 54 for this one. Those sound like names from a novel. Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. Like made up names. Yes. <laughs> Maybe one of them was a was a you know a commie in the 1950s, and this was his pen name. <laughs> his real name was blacklisted. <laughs> Had to, I'm not casting aspersions on any of these dead men. I'm sorry. <laughs> if that was. <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll cut that. <laughs> uh, if you want, uh, if you are interested in the blacklist at all, there's a really great podcast called you must remember this. And their most recent season, quote unquote of, of, uh, episodes was about the blacklist or maybe that was two ago. Uh, and it was really, really good. The blacklist, the, the TV show or blacklist, the historical, the, the historical, the historical, uh, <laughs> the historical political reality. Yes. yes. Okay. Got it. Not James Spader. Maybe not as historical as we'd like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Let's continue. All right. Uh, Todd, how do you know about White Christmas? Uh, White Christmas is a, is a Christmas tradition in our family. We watch it every year. 
Similarly, it is a staple of the holiday season in when I was growing up and even now as an adult. <laughs> we uh, we have it on every Christmas season at least once. Yeah, my kids were a little bit uh, surprised that we were watching it this early in the year. <laughs> right. So listeners, we're recording this pre-Thanksgiving so we can build up some back catalog so we can take the holidays off. <laughs> and so it was a little early for me to turning up, be turning on a Christmas movie, but I did it anyway for you listeners. Yeah. Just to show you how much we love you. All right. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. And over 180,000 titles await you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. And at this season, I I would imagine that there are some delightful versions of A Christmas Carol available on Audible.com. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You got some trivia for us? I got a lot of trivia. I went in deep on the trivia for this one. (laughs) I love White Christmas, the movie. And uh, yeah, there's quite a bit. So Irving Berlin, he wrote the songs for White Christmas. And he wrote a lot of other things. It is estimated that he wrote 1,500 songs in his career. And I love that we just have an estimate for how many songs he wrote. Uh, Included in his career are such well-known classics as God Bless America, There's No Business Like Show Business, Anything You Can Do, and Happy Holidays. When Irving Berlin was five, his family fled Russia because of the anti-Jewish pogroms in the late 1800s. His only memory of Russia is lying on a blanket by the side of the road while his house burned down. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's hardcore. (laughs) So uh, speaking of Irving Irving Berlin... one of the things that's, that stuck out to me this time as I was watching this is how incredibly talented all of the people in this show are. And it, it seems almost, I'm going to say almost too good to be true. Like, I'm just here and I'm going to sit down and make a little sandwich and then sing this amazing, beautiful song to you. And maybe we'll sing a little duet, you know, like right. just totally spontaneous. Uh, but I imagine that for a guy like him, it probably wasn't like... He could sit down Spring. and probably noodle out a tune on the piano and I mean, if and somebody, if somebody out lyrics. said, yeah, if somebody said, really, do you think people would do that? He's like, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. When you write well, 1500 songs in your career, again, estimated 1500 songs in your career, you could probably just whip something out. And he was doing all of this in what was called Tin Pan Alley uh, mm-hmm. in New York, where it was just a bunch of jazz musicians writing music all the time. Like they, they called it Tin Pan Alley because you would walk through it and you just hear music being yeah. banged out the windows. I mean, I I didn't add all of this, but I was reading a little bit more about him. And he, uh, his father, so his family fled Russia. They came to America. His father died only a few years later. And when I think it was when he was 14, he left his family because all, the whole family went out to work every day um, and brought everything back and dropped it into, on, you know, onto their, their kitchen table. And that was what their family lived on. And he felt like he was not, pulling his weight, like he, he was bringing back the smallest share. So he felt like he was an anchor on his family and he left his family and lived on the streets and earned a living by making music basically. Wow. All right. Uh, and well, as should be clear, uh, when I said he fled Russia because of uh, the pogroms, uh, he's Jewish, but he wrote some of our greatest Christmas songs, which I always enjoy that. <laughs> uh, the song White Christmas was written for Bing Crosby and it was first performed on the radio on Christmas Day, 1941, only 18 days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
Um, the song is more melancholy and wistful than most Christmas songs, but was really quite popular uh, during World War II, particularly amongst the soldiers. Uh, Bing Crosby told a story that um, he would go on his USO tours to pep up the troops and they would always ask him to sing White Christmas. And he said, I never wanted to because it would drag them down because <laughs> they just started <laughs> feeling homesick. Uh, but it was the most requested song. Um, so he always sang it for them. He also sang White Christmas in the film Holiday Inn, which was in 1942. And again, in the 1946 film Blue Skies. And then obviously for White Christmas. Have you ever seen Holiday Inn? I have. Have you? I have not. Uh, it is largely great, though it has one horrifying sequence where Bing Crosby, and I cannot remember the name of the actress who's in it with him, but they perform a song in blackface. Oh my gosh. Maybe that's why I've never seen it. Uh, I believe that is usually cut out. If you catch it on TV, you will not get the blackface scene. But wow. I saw it on DVD and I was like, oh. <laughs> and they are they are leaning hard into the racist caricatures that you associate with blackface. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so White Christmas was released as a single in 1942. As I said, it was very popular during World War II. And it holds the Guinness World Record for most sales of a single in history. Though... I, I So I looked at a couple different sites, and there seems to be some debate as to whether it still holds that record or just held it forever, and it was broken by Elton John's Candle in the Wind after Princess Dyla uh, died. Oh, uh-huh. Um, but everyone either has that one of those as number one and one of those as number two for huh. the most single sold. And Bing Crosby singing Silent Night is number three on most lists that, that I looked at. Huh. White Christmas won the 1942 Academy Award for Best Song. Um it was planned that the movie White Christmas was going to be the third collaboration between Irving Berlin, Bing Crosby, and Fred Astaire. But after he read the script, Astaire dropped out of the project and actually asked out of his contract with Paramount. It's worded that way on multiple sites. I don't know if he's like so offended by the script. He's like, I want out of my contract or if it was just timing. Uh, but he, did, he actually didn't make another Paramount movie, I think, after, after wow. he rejected this script. So that's when they brought in Danny Kaye? No, because uh, <laughs> Crosby actually dropped out of the film right then as well because his wife died. Um, but then, and he wanted to be with his children. But then, when he started, like not too long after that, he did start looking for projects again. And he returned to White Christmas, and it was announced that Donald O'Connor would be his co-star. Donald O'Connor is in Singing in the Rain. Um, but then O'Connor dropped out, and that is when Danny Kaye was added to the film. <laughs> Uh, in the film, Vera Ellen is clearly a wonderful dancer, but she was not a singer. Trudy Stevens sang all of her songs, except for one. In the song Sisters, Rosemary Clooney sang both parts, and it was... I was together. wondering about that. I'm so glad that you brought this trivia, because uh, Vera Ellen is a dancer. And I thought, I wonder if, if she's dubbed. And then there were a, a couple of times when I thought, I wonder if Rosemary Clooney is singing both voices, so... <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, that you brought that to our attention. Yeah. So Rosemary Clooney plays Betty, the older of the Haynes sisters, but she was actually seven years younger than Vera Ellen. And while we're discussing ages, wow. Rosemary Clooney was 26, playing the love interest for the 51-year-old Bing Crosby in a classic Hollywood 25-year age gap. <laughs> um, oh, in the movie, there's a, a mention of a, someone named Benny Haynes, the dog-faced boy. And we see this one photograph of him. <laughs> uh, that photograph is the adult uh, actor who had played Alfalfa in The Little Rascals when he was a kid. Oh, I could totally see that. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. White Christmas topped the box office in 1954. Uh, one of the background dancers and his name, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, and I am sorry. It is George Chakiris. He's in yeah. West Side Story. He went on to win an Academy Award in West Side Story. Wow. What did he play? Uh, Bernard. Is okay. it Bernard? Is that the name in the West Side Story? It's one of the names in West yeah. Side Story, I know. Uh, Bernardo. Yeah. 
Nunez is who he played in West Side Story. Uh, but he just kind of shows up in the, as a background dancer in this one. All right, White Christmas was the first film ever released in this division, which you can kind of think of as a version of widescreen. It was much wider than the traditional 35-millimeter film that had been used. And last bit of trivia, in 2004, a stage musical of the film premiered in San Francisco and still tours every holiday season. And I saw that in East Lansing. Really? Yeah, tour came through. I think it's coming to Salt Lake City, isn't it? It is, in fact, coming to Salt Lake City this December. So, All right. Well done. That was quite Thank a bit you. of trivia. Yeah, yeah. It deserves it. I, I, I feel like I, like I almost wanted to, like, we could just do a whole podcast talking about Irving Berlin. That man was Whoa. amazing. Yeah, he was. If you have not seen White Christmas, this is the story of two army buddies played by Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. Bing Crosby has the role of Bob Wallace. Danny Kaye has the role of Phil Davis. And uh, they're army buddies. And then after the war, they uh, they become singers and producers of a show. And uh, they meet two sisters named Judy and Betty, played by Rosemary Clooney and Vera Allen. And uh, they end up in Vermont at a hotel, and they do a big show, and they sing and dance a lot and hope that it snows. That, if that sounds interesting to you. <laughs> was a great summary, Todd. <laughs> you, should, you should check out this film. Uh, it's streaming on Netflix right now. I imagine that it will be through the holidays. Uh, if not... Uh, you could pick it up on Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And uh, you could pick up a DVD or Blu-ray copy there. Uh, we will have links in the show notes. And we would remind you to make all of your holiday purchases, your holiday Amazon purchases, uh, using that link, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. It looks like regular Amazon to you, uh, but we get a little kickback uh, from Amazon uh, from your purchases. So uh, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. Are we ready for the long spoiler synopsis? Yes. And I have to say, listeners, I'm not going to be summarizing most of the musical numbers. So it's a, it turned out to be a quicker synopsis than some <laughs> others that we've done. So we open on Christmas Eve 1944 in the European War Zone, where a group of American soldiers are having a Christmas celebration with Captain Bob Wallace, played by Bing Crosby, singing White Christmas. A new general is arriving and is appalled at how lax the soldiers seem. The retiring general, General Waverly, says that he's going to take care of it while pointing the new general in the wrong direction back to the base. Waverly calls out his troops, and Private Phil Davis, Danny Kaye, says that he arranged the show because Captain Wallace is so talented he had a show in New York before the war. The troops sing a farewell song to General Waverly, but it's interrupted by, you know, war. (laughs) (laughs) Bombs start falling, and a wall is about to fall onto Captain Wallace when Private Davis rescues him. But Davis is injured while doing this. Uh, Later, uh, in the medic tent, Wallace thanks Davis for saving him, and Davis manipulates Wallace's gratitude into forcing him to consider adding a duet that Davis has written to his act after the war, and Davis would, of course, be the other half of the duet. Uh, We get a montage of the war ending and Wallace and Davis performing together as spinning newspaper headlines reveal how popular the new uh, singing team is. They have stage shows and radio shows and become producers as well. Side note, I love montages with newspaper headlines spinning (laughs) in. They are fantastic. What's your favorite in all of film? Favorite montage with spinning newspaper? Your favorite spinning newspaper headline montage. (laughs) I'm sorry, I've completely put you on the spot. I, I, Todd, this isn't the kind of question I could just answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine might be uh, from The Natural. Oh. There's some great uh, spinning newspaper montages in that one. Yeah. Now, mm, 
Or Newsies. I I was I thought of that. That one has it. Does it have the spinning newspaper one? I don't know. I, maybe, I, maybe it feels like it should. It was a missed opportunity. <laughs> I don't if it know doesn't. that it does. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it does. It has a newspaper printing montage. Right. Uh, well, you know, I'm gonna. I'll try and keep that percolating in the back of my head, Todd, <laughs> while I finish up this summary. Well, so we'll add this to your list of now um, things that Joe is interested in in films <laughs> would be uh, maps of any kind, right? Yes. Uh, oh no, maps at the beginning of books. In, in books. Well, and also in comic books, any side cuts that reveal the interior of a building of a particularly secret basis for superheroes. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Cross section. Uh, also, uh, women hiding their pregnancy. In sitcoms, particularly. <laughs> in sitcoms. In real life, it's less intriguing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> less humor to be found there. Yeah. Mostly it's when uh, the actress is pregnant, but the character is not. And I like to see how they try and get around that. Okay. <laughs> just, sir, right. I just want to, like, you know, the, pull back the curtain a little bit. and let the... <laughs> Well, secrets we've learned uh, through 100 episodes of this, this podcast. Yep. So, in the montage, it is clear that Davis is pushing new opportunities while Wallace is hesitant, and anytime Wallace is kind of demurring, uh, Davis will point to his arm that was wounded in the war to just further manipulate him. After the montage, Davis tries to force a double date onto Wallace, but Wallace refuses. He's not interested, and Davis says that Wallace needs a woman in his life. And Wallace says, I'm going to get around to it. And Davis replies with one of my favorite quotes. My dear partner, when what's left of you gets around to what's left to be gotten, what's left to be gotten won't be worth getting. Whatever it is, you've got left. (laughs) Now, Joseph, you're you're neglecting to state that this this entire conversation takes place as they just kind of casually change on screen. Yeah, well, <laughs> like there's uh, in um, it happened one night. There's a really famous sequence where an entire monologue is delivered while uh, the actor is changing, and it actually, according to urban legend, changed the way some men dress <laughs> to the point where undershirt sales yeah, went down. Where where undergar again, according to urban legend, because the the uh, Frank Capra couldn't get the timing right, and the actor couldn't get the timing right if he had to take off an undershirt too. So he changed his button up shirt without an undershirt underneath. I think, and it it changed fashion for a little while. Wait, Frank Capra, isn't that Clark Gable? No, Frank Capra's the director of oh. It Happened One Night. Okay, the, yeah. the star was Clark Okay. <laughs> Before Wallace and Davis have a Christmas vacation, and their entire production crew is getting a Christmas vacation as well, they're going to go see a new act that an old pal from the Army wants them to consider adding. It's a sister act, Betty played by Rosemary Clooney. And before any listeners ask, George Clooney is her nephew. So really Betty played by, yeah, mm-hmm. played by Rosemary Clooney and Judy, uh, who is played by Vera Ellen are the, are the Haynes sisters. When they hear that Wallace and Davis are in the audience, Judy says that their brother Benny must have written to them. Betty says that Benny is out of the country and accuses Judy of sending the letter while pretending to be Benny just to get Wallace and Davis to come see their act. Okay, I have to I have to stop right here and say any parents that name their children Benny and Betty are just asking for (laughs) confusion. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I don't think I've ever noticed it until I've been reading the summary right now. (laughs) Uh, Judy admits that she did write the letter, but says it won't do any harm. And Betty warns her to be careful that she doesn't ruin their careers with her schemes. Dun dun dun. They go out and perform a song called Sisters, and Wallace is smitten with Betty while Davis is attracted to Judy. Davis and Judy go out onto the dance floor while Betty and Wallace have a conversation at the table. And Betty immediately admits that her sister wrote the, de- uh, the letter, and Betty and Wallace argue about whether that was an underhanded angle. And uh, Wallace, or sorry, Davis and Judy are out on the dance floor looking back at them, arguing, but they think they are flirting happily. <laughs> 
Judy says that the sister act is going to Vermont that night because they have some shows lined up there. And then Davis and Judy go out and have a huge dance number on uh, a patio outside. So good. So good. Um, I have to say, so I think it was last Christmas, uh, White Christmas was playing at a movie theater. And I took my wife to go see it. And seeing the dance numbers on the big screen was so different than seeing them on a TV screen. I bet like, it was glorious. Everything was so much more impressive. And, and like, you, you're watching it and like, how? My legs can't move. <laughs> like, like, their legs are moving. I cannot dance the way they're dancing in any way, shape, or form. Even, like, approaching what their skill level is. And it was even more impressive on the big screen. For so long when I was a kid, I would just fast forward every single song in this movie. Uh, and now it's like my, they're my favorite parts. Amazing. All right. Coming inside from that dance number, the Haynes sisters discover that a hotel manager and a sheriff are waiting to arrest the girls unless they pay $200 in damages. They insist that they did not damage anything. Davis gives their, the girls their train tickets to New York, insisting that this was Wallace's idea so that they can go get out of town uh, before the sheriff arrests them. And he says that uh, Wallace and Davis will go stall the sheriff. In order to make the sheriff think the girls are on stage, they play the, a record of the song Sisters while Wallace and Davis perform a lip sync battle to the song while doing a dance with big blue fans and sashes. Uh, the sheriff realizes what happens uh, while Wallace and Davis are escaping out of a window and they catch a taxi, which is conveniently pulling up behind a club. I don't know why, <laughs> but the taxi is right there and they get to the train station on the train. Davis pretends he just can't find the tickets. It's not sure where he put them and they have to buy tickets to go sit up all night in the club car. Wallace asks for tickets to New York, but Davis says, what about tickets to Vermont? How much do those cost? Uh, and this is all to Wallace's dismay because he's planning on, having his Christmas vacation in New York. The ticket master says that the tickets cost the same, but, you know, they need to pay. <laughs> Whichever one they're going to. On their way to the club car, they bump open the door to a drawing room, and the Haynes sisters see them going by. The sisters come out of their club car and thank Wallace for giving them the tr train tickets. They say that they're on their way to Vermont and ask Wallace and Davis to come see their show. Davis motions to his injured arm, and Wallace says, fine, we're going to Vermont. And then they sing a flirty song about snow. Judy and Davis <laughs> think that there's a spark between uh, Betty and Wallace and say that they need to work to make sure that they get together. They, so they're, they're scheming now. They arrive in Vermont and are shocked to see that it has no snow. They arrive at the inn where the Haines sisters are supposed to be doing the holiday act. And the housekeeper, Emma, says that they don't need a floor show because the inn is empty. Because there's no show. And it's, uh, you know, an inn for skiers. There's no snow. No snow. Yes, got There's really no nice. snow, and there's no show. There's no show. Yeah. <laughs> Wallace and Davis discover that General Waverly is the owner of the inn. So this is the general from that very first scene of White Christmas. It's all coming around, all coming together, uh, and it's having the the he and the inn are having tight times because of this unseasonably warm weather. They hatch a scheme to get the general a full house at the inn. They plot to have their entire production come up and rehearse at the inn with the hope that word that Wallace and Davis, with the Haines sisters added to the act, performing in Vermont will draw massive crowds. Uh, they had given all of their production staff and dancers a holiday vacation, so this will be expensive, but they feel they owe it to the general. A huge number of the cast and crew show up to use the ski lodge to rehearse for their show. They build huge sets, and after practicing one number, General Waverly's niece says, This is sure to bring crowds in. And uh, right after that, Wallace leans over Judy to show her how to play a song on the piano, and they are scandalously close to one another. That night... <laughs> 
Judy keeps telling Betty that she should go eat something to help her sleep. Judy looks out her window and signals to Davis, who confirms that Wallace is over at the inn's kitchen, and Wallace and Betty then have a flirtatious meal and song and a kiss. The next day, Wallace comes by General Waverly to give him a letter. Waverly has applied to return to active duty, but the letter from a friend of his in Washington treats Waverly's application like it was just a joke, and they all had a good laugh about it, and Waverly is crestfallen. Wallace gets an idea to make the general feel special. While Davis does a big musical number with Judy, Wallace calls Ed Harrison, who um, has a big TV show, and he asks for a few minutes on his show to make a pitch. But while the housekeeper, Emma, is listening and spying on an extension to the phone, Harrison says, hey, you should, I should come up and record the whole show in Vermont and play up how sad the general is. Really make it schmaltzy. It'll be great for Wallace and Davis, and it'll, it'll be a tearjerker for all of America. And then Emma hangs up before she hears anything else, and she thinks Wallace is plotting to make the, the, anim, uh, the general kind of a laughing stock of the country. Uh, but after Emma hangs up, Wallace says, absolutely not. They're not going to capitalize on the general's sadness. Betty comes by, and Emma laments that she just heard Wallace planning to do the whole show on TV and make the general a pathetic figure from coast to coast. But it'll be a huge free publicity for Wallace and Davis. Upset, Betty starts acting very cold towards Wallace. Davis and Judy notice this, and Judy thinks that Betty is like a mother hen to her and won't pursue a a relationship until Judy herself is in one. So, with Judy really pushing hard for this plan, Davis and Judy announce that they are engaged in the hopes that this is going to spur Wallace and Betty to get closer. Instead, this convinces Betty to take a solo job singing at a club in New York. She leaves town. Judy and Davis tell Wallace that their engagement was a sham, and Wallace plans to try and go see Betty in New York when he goes to uh, make that appearance on the Ed Harrison show. There, in New York, he tries to explain to Betty what happened, but they still have some wires crossed, and things do not get made clear. Uh, General Waverly likes to watch the Ed Harrison show every single night, and Davis (laughs) has to try and keep him away from the TV. This gives Danny Kaye an excellent chance for some broad physical comedy, as he pretends to have fallen down the stairs and needs Waverly's help uh, to walk off the injury. While Waverly misses the Ed Harrison show, Betty sees it. Wallace is not promoting his own show. He's asking that any soldier who served under General Waverly and who can come to Vermont, uh, that they come to honor their retired leader for one special night. We cut to Christmas Eve. The retired soldiers and their wives are flooding Vermont. Waverly has no idea that this is happening. He's expecting the opening night of Wallace and Davis's show. He's disappointed that Emma sent all of his suits to the cleaner, except for his army uniform. But uh, because Wallace and Davis have done so much for him, he will appear wearing the army uniform. And as he arrives in the hall, there's wide applause, and then dozens of soldiers in uniform come out singing his praises, literally singing because it's a musical. (laughs) He is clearly moved. Then there's a montage of musical performances highlighted by Betty's unexpected arrival, and Wallace is clearly pleased by this. For the first time since Thanksgiving, it begins to snow in Vermont. As they look out at the snow from backstage, a horse-drawn sleigh just happens to be coming by. Uh, That sleigh driver had to just be waiting, like literally sitting in his barn with his horse already hitched up, just (laughs) waiting for a half inch of snow to bring that out. Uh, The big closing number of the movie and of the show that they're doing uh, within the movie is White Christmas. Uh, Wallace and Davis and uh, Betty and Judy are all dressed as Santa and Mrs. Claus costumes. After they sing White Christmas, Betty and Wallace and Judy, uh, Judy and Davis all duck behind the Christmas tree and the couples share a kiss. And they're all actually being honest about their emotions right now. The end. Well done. 
Thank you. And let's just know, there's a lot of musical numbers that I gave a really short shift to in this summary. And it's Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Rosemary Clooney. And it, it's it's great. There's great singing and dancing that Very you can't really do in a podcast summary. <laughs> yeah, the, both the singing and the dancing is just, like, top-notch. It's really, really good. So I have a... <laughs> I have a... a as I was as I was watching this this evening, I was thinking about these characters. I mean, I think if you had to like pick a main character or like a protagonist, I sus I suspect one would lean towards uh, Bing Crosby, right? I, uh, but I think that that's the initial reaction. But as I think about it, I don't want to say yes to that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but yes. Yeah. When you think about the action in this in this uh, in this film. It is all driven by Judy and Phil. Right. And I even then, awesome. Betty actually makes more, like, she leaves, she's the one that leaves town. She yes. does more than Bing Crosby's character, Wallace. He Wallace is pretty much along for the ride. He does <laughs> almost everything. nothing except for he calls, he calls in and has all the big, uh, bring the whole production in. But that's only because uh, uh, Davis first says hey i have a great idea why don't we do a thing and then he goes oh that is a great idea but it's only half a great idea and then he goes and finishes it off um and then what's uh, what's the other big he does one other thing oh, going, the, to going, on, going to ed harrison um but other than that he really is just pushed along by all of these other characters which i think is awesome like judy is probably the most agentive character in the whole story uh which i think is great yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, she is the schemer, um, and it's the schemes, both um, getting Wallace and Davis to meet them in the first place, uh, but then also the romantic entanglements that come is all because of her scheming. Yeah, and I, I just, I have this kind of idea floating around in my head, and I, I don't, it's not even, it's not even like a half-formed idea, but it's just interesting to think about, like, these younger the this the younger couple driving this action but but it's not like Wallace is a buffoon or something and he's he just oozes Bing Crosby just oozes charisma <laughs> um and and presence and like gravitas but um but he's very reserved in his personal life. Yeah, it's like he needs he needs them and they need him and like together they it's it's what makes the film great is is the kind of the the balance between both of these pairs uh and i think that that's awesome and i wonder yeah. if there's something more to be said about that or not but well i think there's also the balance that we get of um the wallace and betty relationship is the straight romance for the story and the uh davis and judy is the comedic romance yeah. Um, so, so it's bal balancing the tone of the film between these two as well. Yeah. It's, it's just, I, I just, um, I mean, as I think about like life, <laughs> like you, you need that kind of agent of chaos, which is what, I, I mean, Phil Davis especially is just this kind of chaotic. <laughs> it's uh, Danny Kaye. He will be the agent of chaos in any film yeah. that he's in. <laughs> and you need that, but, but it's nice to have that counterbalance with, you know, the, the steady the hand polish. of a Bing yeah, Crosby. The polish of, of Bing Crosby and together. One of the sisters awesome. have, have the same balance happening too. Yes, absolutely. So I love that. All right. Two, before we dig in any more to the characters, there's two like minor things that I just want us to, to tackle. One is when I was a child, it always bugged me that 
when they're talking about their brother, Benny, the dog face boy, <laughs> that, um, Betty, I think it is, says he's out of the country in Alaska. <laughs> I never even <laughs> noticed that. And that always bugged me until I realized to, when I was writing the summary, I'm like, oh, this film's from 1954. <laughs> <laughs> Alaska was not, it didn't, did not become a state until 59. Did you think Alaska was being slighted or something? It just was weird to me as a kid. Like, Alaska's part of the country. Why are they saying he's out of the country? <laughs> like, it was just a disconnect. And I've seen the film as an adult, and the, I think the line still always bugged me until I was writing the summary and, like, had the date for when the film was made in the, you know, in the trivia and our intro stuff. I never, ever noticed out. that. All right. And then the other thing that I think we need to tackle, much like way back in our Tangled episode, when we discussed what is the legal system of the the, the country of Andrew, we said the wrong country in our last, in our, in our hundredth episode. Is it called oh, Corona or something? Corona? Yes, it's, it's Corona, which isn't named in the film. It's only an ancillary material, but... Um, okay. So, so Tangled is set in... Corona. Corona. We misidentified it as Arendelle in our hundredth episode, which is the setting of Frozen. But anyway, we, we apologies. Yes, we we went deep in that tangled episode discussing what in the world is the legal system that has. Um, uh, uh, what's the character's name? Flynn uh, Rider gets Flynn Rider is, accused is a uh, sentence to be executed like immediately. Right. So I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the economics of small town Vermont inns <laughs> because. Okay. <laughs> the entire plot of this movie other than the romance side of it like the the business plot is that they are going to fill up his inn with guests because they have this broadway show happening there right yes all oh, these big production numbers how big is the production ca- crew that came up to vermont to help prepare <laughs> it looks like it's got to be a couple hundred right it seems are there any rooms left in this small Vermont inn for people? <laughs> yeah. For people. Once the cast and crew are all there, like haven't they already <laughs> solved the general's problem by saying, Hey, let's rehearse here for the holidays. Maybe they're all in uh, spring bar tents out. Uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are the help. You don't get rooms. <laughs> and yeah. then the train station on Christmas Eve is bustling and that room uh the where they're uh doing the performance is packed to the gills with people so how does the general I, not notice yeah that the entire town has actually woken up on this day <laughs> when that he's up in his are, room that there are hundreds of people in his hotel and how do they get to the hotel from like how many taxi cabs does this vermont town have like well, I, they have the, 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 the guy with the buggy yeah, but but how busy is that train station on the night of Christmas Eve when uh, the soldiers? That are train station looks swamped. Yeah, it, I I I just am imagining the general upstairs, you know, talking about his suits and not <laughs> noticing <laughs> there are hundreds of people bustling around underneath him. And, Maybe and, they were and all very headlights quiet. passing constantly through by his window as as the taxi, the one taxi, circles back and forth. <laughs> I really think it, I think it was the guy with the horse-drawn carriage, the same guy with the sleigh. Oh, he yeah. Has a, he has a buggy. Oh, okay. And, so and that, that, that clears that all up. <laughs> How many people can he take in the buggy per trip? Well, you know, he's got, he's got, a, he's got a trailer on the back of it with some hay, and he uh, <laughs> takes him around, gives him some hot chocolate. Uh, this is one yeah. of those instances where, uh, like, there's stories I love, but sometimes I notice one thing about him, like, mm, like that kind of makes a whole plot structure fall down a little bit and it's out of a place of love i'm not saying this is a bad movie because of this but it really seems 
all of the general's financial woes should be should be cleared up the second they have their production crew up there. And yeah. they maybe shouldn't be able to house any of the guests they're hoping to attract by having Wallace and Davis there. Or maybe they're maybe they're doing a solid for all the other uh innkeepers right. in Vermont. Or maybe this inn is just much more massive than where we never see the scale. We never see a hallway full of rooms or anything like that. We don't know they how many rooms certainly they could certainly be staying at other places and then everybody you know it, it's a uh, lifts all the boats. Yeah, yeah, the entire economy of Vermont was altered by Wallace and Davis. Pine Tree, Vermont. Pine Tree, Vermont. Yes. (laughs) I was, while we're talking about knits, this isn't, I don't, I don't consider this a knit, but I am just amazed at how quickly these performers pick up new routines. (laughs) Like, they're like, okay, everybody, uh, we got here two hours ago. Let's do a, let's do a run, a run through of this number. And it's just like, you know, phenomenal. And how these two Haynes sisters just fit into the Wallace and Davis act. And they have all their uh, dance numbers, like completely choreographed and polished in a a matter of hours. (laughs) Sometimes it's just, uh, it's just amazing to me. Well, and I think this film, because it's a backstage musical, right? Where like most of the musical elements aren't just people bursting in a song. It's them performing a stage. So um, musicals, usually you either have, you accept the reality of this world where everyone hears the same song and can sing, you know, knows the tune and can sing and perform together just at the drop of a hat. And that's the way they go through life. Or another classic way to do that is the backstage musical where um, they're performing on stage for another audience that's come to see that kind of musical. But we as the viewers are seeing them practice and all these other things. Um, And I think because it's a backstage musical, in some ways it makes that other element where they know everything instantly. It's like, well, shouldn't they have to practice more before they know it, <laughs> before they know it instantly? Like it almost, re- you know, removes our ability to separate the, the classic musical tradition. Uh, I think I agree with that. <laughs> it was just, it just sort of struck me like, man, they get on a train, they go to a place. It's like, we open, you know, you just do a show that night. And, and I, I just want to know, that, like, but, but maybe they, that's how it actually is. When they do the Mandy number, uh, which is one of the big numbers with uh, Vera Ellen coming down the <laughs> stairs, like, they have a massive set that's built. And I feel like this must have been a regular part of the Wallace and Davis show that they were doing in New York. Yeah. And I want to know. Was there someone else who used to be in the Mandy role, and they just said, "Sorry, we've got, <laughs> we've got this Hane sister, and uh, I've got a little crush on her." <laughs> and Wallace likes her sister, so she's the star of the show now. Wouldn't that be awesome if there were like, I can imagine some like postmodern novel. It's like this this whole story from the point of view of the of the slighted dancer who gets who really becomes the understudy it. was the star becomes the understudy. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So it's like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that that novel also deal with the small town economics of Pine Tree, Vermont. <laughs> like yeah, huge we... chapters just breaking down how this all works. <laughs> we would get to see all the other hotels, the hotel owners who are angry at first because all of the attention is going to the general, but then they're happy at the end because all of their hotels are full as well. There's and... also the character of the taxi driver who just is, he keeps coming home every night to his wife. No fares today, honey. I'm sorry. I don't know how we're going to have Christmas for the kids. <laughs> and oh, then, yes. <laughs> so Christmas Eve itself. And then on Christmas Eve, he suddenly <laughs> makes more money in one day than he usually makes in a year because he's been ferrying people nonstop. And the sleigh, dri- the sleigh driver just sitting in his stable. like Every morning he hitches up the, like every fourth chapter is just him hitching up the horse every and then, morning. And then he opens Today's the, the day. Today's the day. 
And then every night he has to unhitch it. And and sorry. The, the horse is named Snowflake. Oh, today, sorry. Snowflake. <laughs> sorry, Snowflake. Not today. And he just sits there and, like, has, he has a piece of straw hanging out of his mouth and he just pats Snowflake's neck and, and stares out at the green trees. And every now and then he gives a half a carrot to Snowflake. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. I did not expect us to go there, but that was really delightful. All right, so back to these great characters in the story that we have. <laughs> not not the characters we're making up. I think we just set a record for the most headcanon in like created in a in a three minute period. Wow! Like there's like uh. there's like four characters of three families based on that, and a horse named Snowflake. Oh man, that was fantastic. Listeners, okay. if you enjoyed that, upcoming soon we have our <laughs> annual Christmas special where we will make up Christmas stories that could appear on the Hallmark Channel or in other uh, other networks as a random Christmas special every year. Uh, so, so hopefully we didn't burn all our creative juices on this side story of White Christmas. Okay. Okay, we gotta compose ourselves. That was amazing. Oh, okay, um, so one thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, the scene when they're getting dressed, when the Davis and Wallace are getting dressed and they're talking about um, family. How, and... fa- family, yeah. And Davis is is telling Wallace, you are miserable. And he says, I'm not miserable, I'm happy. And he says, no, you are. And he says, no, I'm I'm really happy. And he says, that's the worst kind of miserable, is thinking that you're happy when you really don't have the thing that brings happiness, which is... Uh, you know, finding somebody and settling down and having a family. And and then Wallace says, well, you know, I, I'll do that sometime, but not right now. I'm, you know, I'm busy with show business and stuff. And uh, I often ask my students, well, this, this semester I'm teaching a humanities class, and we're every, pretty much every work that we do, uh, at the very end, I ask my students, what is this... Uh, author or director or artists, what is their vision of happiness? And um, it's it's pretty, I don't know, it's not always entirely clear. Like sometimes you have to kind of read into it, but this is so, such a clear statement of like, this is what brings happiness is, uh, you know, finding somebody and then settling down. And uh, And I wonder... So I have students who will say things like, uh, happiness is whatever you want it to be. Like, you know, just whatever. Just whatever you think brings you happiness, then that's what makes you happy. And here we have a really clear statement of like, this brings happiness. And and Wallace says, no, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And Davis says, no, actually, you're not. <laughs> and it turns out that he's right. That the thing that would that is really going to bring Wallace true happiness is you know being with betty so so what do you make of this i mean i don't i don't know what the question is here exactly uh but i think it's i think it's interesting to think about um like is happiness is it relative is it just kind of whatever is it a social construct like are we are we made happy by whatever society tells us makes us happy oh producer andrew really wants to jump in so in 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 their conversation um, I think what Davis says is he says, then you're happy for the wrong reasons, which is the same as being miserable. Yes. Like, so he's saying like, even though you claim to be happy and even if you are happy, if it's not for 
the right reasons, then it's false and therefore not good enough. Right. So this actually, what this is reminding me of is another podcast I listened to called, um, oh, what's the Star Trek one called? Mission Log. Mission Log. And they go episode by episode through the original series. And now they're going episode by episode through the next generation. And they search for themes, morals, messages, and meanings in each episode. Like, what is this episode really saying? And I remember back in the original series, there's one episode and this, this theme got brought up uh, several times, but there was this planet of settlers who were content and happy and their needs were being met. But uh, when Kirk and the crew went down there, uh, they realized that there was some spore that was being released that was making them think they were content and happy. And (laughs) Kirk insisted that they'd be removed from the planet and made to work because work is what really is going to, is what humanity is for. Like we need work to, to progress. Huh. And in the, in their discussion on mission log, like one guy got really hung up. Like if they were happy, they were happy. <laughs> like right. Kirk has one vision of what happiness is. And he's like in almost a fascistic way, forcing his vision of what humanity should be onto this group of people who were 100% content and their needs were 100% met on this planet. And, 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 um, the one, one of the commentators said like, really he's removing their happiness from them because it doesn't match his vision of what happiness should be. And people like, apparently this one just blew up their message boards because people were reading into it about like being a pro drug message or an anti-drug message in this film. And, you know, in this one episode of star Trek and the one guy's like, all I'm saying is if they were happy, they were happy. (laughs) Like, uh, and, and their happiness doesn't have to match everyone else's vision of happiness. Uh, this totally reminds me of the scene in Till We Have Faces when, uh, what's the, or- Orwell is talking to Psyche when she goes up to try to find her on the mountain. And Psyche says, I am so happy. I'm here. I'm with this God that I love and I live in this palace and everything is wonderful. And Orwell is looking at her like, I see no palace. Uh, you're dressed in rags. You look good, but you're dressed <laughs> in rags and there's no palace. And I've got to get you off of this mountain because you're crazy. And I just, it's, I think it's so, in, I think it's so easy to say, well, you know, happiness is just whatever. Until that whatever thing either conflicts with your own happiness or yeah, is it impinging on others happiness yeah or when it's somebody that you really truly love and you really truly believe that the thing that they're doing is not going to bring them really true happiness mm-hmm. right like a child you know i mean i can say you know whatever if if people want to do x behavior and it makes them happy like that's fine it's fine for them but if my kid comes to me and says, I want to do X behavior because it will make me happy, I'm like, I really don't think that's going to make you happy, man. Um, <laughs> Might give you the illusion of happiness. Yes. Uh, and so I, I just think, I mean, I think it's a pretty common, I don't know, 21st century thing to say, well, whatever makes you happy is, is fine. Um, and I think it's a very 1950s thing to say, well, actually, we, we kind of know what brings people happiness and it's this it's a white picket fence with a husband and wife and and two and a half children yeah but but i wonder if you can but but i think the uh like the pushback against that where it's like whatever makes you happy happy came because the definition of happiness became so codified in the 50s 
that there was almost right. like a social pushback to say, no, it doesn't have to look that way. But I wonder if you take a step back from that and say, you know, maybe it's not, you know, uh, this typical 1950s white picket fence, two and a half children thing. But could you take a step back and can, is it possible to make any kind of broad statement about what generally makes people happy that would, that would apply the same in a 1950s musical as it would in a 19th century realist novel as it would in a Shakespeare play as it would in a Greek tragedy? All right, I'm going to need a minute to look something up. There's a long-term Harvard study about happiness, I think. All right, Todd. I Listeners, I took a moment to go look this up <laughs> to, to try and answer Todd's question. Uh, there is a study called the Grant Study, which uh, was done at Harvard. It is a 75-year longitudinal study of 268. I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, but I've heard of this in other places, so I trust these citations. 268 physically and mentally healthy Harvard college-age sophomores from the classes of 1939 to 1944. And every two years, essentially, uh, they... Check, check up on these. And uh, the basis of the study was um, about um, healthy aging, um, what factors are going to lead to healthy aging, but it also got into emotional health as well. Um, but they studied all these men that were part of the study, like their childhood. They had them answer questionnaires about how they were raised, what the relationships were with their families. And every two years, they continued to answer those questions about their current relationships. And um, so amongst the results that have been found in this study, which is, I think it's actually still ongoing. Like there's still some members of that. I've, class I've heard of this yeah, study before that are still alive yeah. and, and are still responding. Um, alcoholism is a disorder of great destructive power. Like that's one of the things that messed up <laughs> a lot of people. So don't, don't turn to alcohol for happiness is one thing that the study says. Um, and, but then everything else that they, they talk about um, financial success, career success, emotional success, um, the general, Conclusion is, quote, warmth of relationships throughout life have the greatest positive impact on life satisfaction. Put differently, uh, Val Val uh, Valent, who's one of the, the people who do the study, says that the study has shown happiness is love, full stop. Um, so warmth of childhood relationships with parents, warmth of relationships, uh, adult relationships, all those things correlate with basically positive outcomes in all aspects of life according to the study. So, so, so when somebody says, you know, I am a rock, I am an island, I need nobody, uh, this, you know, job that I work where I sit by myself and I have no connection with anybody, but I'm just raking in the dough and it makes me super happy. And <laughs> there's a Harvard study that says you could be happier <laughs> if you had warm relationships. <laughs> I just, I think it's interesting. The more that I read and the and the more that I see and the longer I live, the more I tend to agree with that study. That actually it's not all totally relative. And that if you do fill your life with some really warm, close relationships, you will be happier. And people that are miserable tend to be people whose lives uh, are absent of that. And I think it's also... I mean, I don't know if the study itself says this, but I think you can have a measure of happiness alone, right? Like you sure. can be content, uh, but it seems to be saying that there could be more happiness to be had with the and this is, development and maintenance of warm relationships. And this is the other thing that my students say is they say, I don't like that idea because I don't need somebody else to be happy. 
like it makes you it makes you seem less powerful and less of a you know strong individual if you say what i really need to be happy is somebody else uh and yet <laughs> like book after book after movie after play after <laughs> harvard study uh, harvard at this study point <laughs> says no actually you do you really need other people and to to achieve the like the highest levels of happiness you don't get that by yourself you just don't and i think i i think i agree with that yeah and i think wallace and davis they were at like the peak of creative output and financial success <laughs> like they yeah. they were doing just fine uh but they found more happiness um than what they had been experiencing both of them uh and the Haynes sisters were having some creative success they were not as popular as um wallace and davis obviously um but i think uh, they, they were making a career uh, singing together as sisters, which they had a warm relationship as sisters and Wallace and Davis had a warm relationship as friends huh? uh, as war buddies. Um, but adding the romantic relationship gave, you know, elevated all of them to a higher level of happiness. Yeah. I, th- I just think it's really easy to look back at a film made in 1954 and to see them in these very traditional uh, roles and to hear them talking about things in very traditional ways that we um, th- th- you you might tend to feel kind of I don't know condescending toward at this point. Like, come on, guys, it's not all about slippers and uh, smoking pipes and you know, like uh, having well, nine. What was the disgust- and- disgusting meal that he suggested? Buttermilk and liverwurst. Was yeah. that? That yes. sounds awful. That that's just a liverwurst sandwich. <laughs> that's just atrocious sounding. But he said it like this is the key to all domestic bliss. <laughs> right. Buttermilk and liverwurst and having a beautiful girl on your arm and having nine kids. And, and smoking a pipe, like you said. And smoking a pipe and wearing slippers. Like that's that's it. And I think it's easy to look at that and say, Well, that's not my version of happiness, right? Like uh, but if you take, you know, two steps back and kind of get at the heart of what they're talking about i think there's something there i think there's substance there and and that it's that they're not so far off from you know what the what the harvard study says brings happiness and what pretty much <laughs> much of uh literature western literature to this point uh has has told us brings happiness well on that heavy note, Todd, I just want to transition to a few lighter things. Do you have a favorite song? <laughs> well, it's just more serious, I guess. Not heavy, <laughs> but but more serious. But do you have a favorite song in the White Christmas uh, movie? Oh, man. That's really tough. Is it uh, the Retired General song? <laughs> just kidding. They can't all be classics in <laughs> Berlin. I'm sorry. That one is not <laughs> going to be appearing on a lot of other playlists outside of this well, movie. I mean, the song White Christmas is... Uh, can we just take that one off the table? Yeah, we have to, because that is my favorite uh, Christmas song. It's okay. the, sung by Bing Crosby. You can't really top that. <laughs> okay. So, of the also rans? Yeah, yeah. I like... Uh, I like... So uh, I I have to kind of separate these into um, like singing numbers and dancing numbers. Uh, I think my favorite singing number is uh, Counting Your Blessings. I just really, really like that song. Although Sisters is probably a close second because I love that song too. So, so okay, okay. So they, my mom's maiden name is Haynes and she has a sister. <laughs> and Do they sing this song together? They 
as not like regular. When, it, when it's on, they'll they'll sing along to it. Yeah. Say, yes, we're Haynes sisters. Yes, they are the Haynes sisters. My grandmother and her sister sing this at least, I mean, at least once that I remember at like a family party. And every time I see this film, I think of them singing together. It was awesome. Uh, I just, I just love watching Danny Kay and Vera Ellen dance. It's just magic. <laughs> and she is, she is like a force of nature. I mean, she is so. There's something in the energy with which she dances that I just find like mesmerizing. So, <laughs> She's really great. I mentioned that I saw this on the big screen uh, last year, and the the number that was most transformed for me was the choreography number because I uh-huh. remember not liking that one when I was a kid. You always complained about yeah. that one, but uh, but seeing it on the big screen, like the dancing was just so much more impressive. <laughs> like yes. what what everyone was doing. Um, from Danny Kaye and, and Virella to the, the, even the backup dancers, like this was just a lot of skill was on display that I never appreciated. It's really, it's really spectacular. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any way to like, you know, rank great song and dance numbers. I don't know if they're as, as good as Fred and Ginger or, uh, Gene Kelly or something, but it is just so enjoyable <laughs> to watch. <laughs> And she, I really think she's uh, just amazing. The, like, just the presence that she has and the energy with which she dances is is really great. Um, I always enjoy just the vocal talent on display and the snow number. I think that's probably the best, like, vocal performance uh, when, uh-huh. when they really all... Uh, well, I guess not Vera Ellen. I can't remember the name of the, <laughs> <laughs> the one I who does her voice. It and I was thinking... I really don't think Vera Ellen is singing right now because she has no like singing credits to her name mm-hmm. and neither her nor uh, Rosemary um, Clooney, uh, Clooney ha- were in very many films at all. And so I thought, I really don't think she's singing. I think it's dubbed. And then, and then I was thinking, how would it be to, um, to record this <laughs> with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Rosemary Clooney, and then you're the one that like can't carry it. <laughs> <laughs> she made up for it with the dancing. She absolutely made up for it with the dancing, but I just think, like, sitting in that train car and to have those three and be like, "Come on, <laughs> help us out a little bit." But yeah, but I, I think like vocally that one's the most interesting. But for like the energy of the dance and everything, I I have always liked the. Um... The Mandy number, like it's just it's big Busby it's Berkeley, huge. Busby Berkeley style Broadway show, which but even by the fifties was being phased out, and how Hollywood is doing it. But there's just something about the spectacle uh, yeah. that that is inherent to that kind of uh, performance, which really Hollywood hasn't done since the forties, I think. Um, but to see it there, it's just it's it's pretty cool to see all of that. And then I love the cut from the end of this giant number, which. I don't know how they fit that um, yes. that the staircase into this little <laughs> Vermont ski lodge <laughs> that she comes down. Like that's uh, sometimes I've heard it called a King Kong cut when directors don't want you to think about space and how things are done because in a in the first King Kong film <laughs> the entire crew gets killed by the dinosaurs on Skull Island and then there's like four of them left and they gas King Kong and he's passed out on the beach and then the next shot is him on the boat chained up and someone in the crew asks <laughs> like, how, 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 how do they do that 
<laughs> and he said, don't worry about it. We're going to just do the cut and no one will think about it. <laughs> the cut from the Mandy number, wow. which has this giant red staircase that she came down uh, and just ton- dozens of dancers. And then you, you turn and it's the general and his niece and his housekeeper sitting inside this dining room. <laughs> In it's totally empty. In yeah. It's like that cut from the stage we just saw to where they're sitting. I don't know how the, the space is actually functioning at this moment. Um, it. But it, it's just a, it is a fun juxtaposition that happened. I mean, they want you to have that juxtaposition of this big giant Broadway number in the small ski lodge. I think the choreography number is really interesting. Um, it, it's very meta. Pro- <laughs> Yeah, like from a from a cultural historical standpoint, I think it's really interesting that they're doing this. Uh, they're making a commentary on dance, you know, on modern dance <laughs> uh, and theater dance, right? And yeah, um, I just I think it's I so. Think it's if, if listeners, if you're unfamiliar, the choreography number has Danny Kay like as a very 1950s beatnik kind of. Uh, figure doing doing like talking about choreography and saying like back in the day, you know there were um, people who would who would tap dance, uh, people who would do high kicks and all these, but now we all do choreography and it's like this very exaggerated version of um, you know of modern dance choreography that's happening and right. the, the whole number is this kind of uh, comparison of classic dancing which. Everyone in the cast is doing <laughs> the classic dancing. <laughs> you know, as he's saying, no one does this anymore. They all do it. Uh, and then they also do the choreography. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a parody of mm-hmm. modern dance. And it's these people saying this is – it seems to me that what they're saying is this is this new kind of popular or hip thing to do. And it's just not nearly as cool as what we do still, <laughs> you know? Uh, and when I see the tap dancing, I, I, really I kind of have to agree. The tap dancing is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know really how is. she gets uh, Vera and gets her toe to tap that much <laughs> in that number. I suspect that there's some sound work going on there. I, I don't, I, I, mean, I, I don't know that a human that. toe can do <laughs> <laughs> what, what she does there, but the colors like this bright pink and the, the costumes when they're, the, the modern dancers are dressed in these very simple, uh, clothes. They have this just strange black silhouette, kind of, kind of spandex. Strange, gaudy makeup on. Um, it's a total parody of that of modern dance, and a celebration of the big, you know, these big productions with high kicks and 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 amazing costumes and. <laughs> um, but all I of know, I, I mean, it's interesting that they slide this like comment this this commentary on on art in to this film but it's, it's coming from people who were all working in the industry even before world war ii <laughs> so yeah. it's it's kind of like a defensive uh, or is it, it, it in that light it's kind of a kids get off my lawn old man rant <laughs> yes <laughs> it really is it really is but i think it's done well enough that i mean i find myself kind of nodding along with the old man saying yeah kids get off the lawn because i really like this <laughs> um it now go ahead. Yeah, I was. I there's a there's a different direction we could take that conversation, but I don't I don't know that I want to go there. Okay. <laughs> um, I just wanted to make sure that uh, I mean we've really sung praises to Vera Ellen's dancing and Bing Crosby singing, but I Danny Kay as the comedic force in this is amazing, and um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is actually him and Vera Ellen playing off each other, where and I don't know that it necessarily works perfectly 
as far as the way the characters are seen. Because from the very first moment, he uh, Danny Kaye li- lays eyes on um, Vera Ellen. Like, he's attracted to her, obviously. Like, he's talking about what color <laughs> eyes she has. Um, but then there's a scene later on where they're scheming now to say, if we're going to get Wallace and Betty together, you and I need to act like we're attracted to each other. <laughs> and he suddenly's like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. well the thing that's interesting about that is that here he is he's all like um he's pushing wallace to get into a relationship and then you realize at that point that he's terrified of of the same thing i mean he he's not willing to you know take the medicine that he's pushing on his friend right i think that's interesting i think it's an interesting kind of commentary on his character but i also think it's don't you see that that like he's clearly attracted to her this whole thing and the scheme to get their friends together. He doesn't mind spending time with her, <laughs> right? No, he doesn't. But once that relationship becomes more serious, that's more where serious like, the panic sets in. Yeah. I mean, it's like in high school when you would see a cute girl and you'd be like, yeah, she's really cute. But, but if you ever had to go up and talk to her, then you'd be terrified. And and by, you, you, I mean, by you, I mean me. <laughs> well, I, I think that's all adolescent males. Uh, <laughs> you. Uh, but if you had an excuse to be talking with her, that was fine. <laughs> right. Uh, so if the excuse is that we're going to get our friends together, then you're fine. But if it becomes anything more, then it gets really awkward right away. But not for Judy, right. just for just for him. So we're establishing that. How old was Danny Kaye in this? In his at least thirties, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she's she's in her thirties, so these thirties are really just high school adolescents, is is what we're seeing. Well, yeah, but again, you see, and this is why I I I still think that Judy is the most agentive character in this in this film, followed closely by Phil. But um, but Judy is the one that that recognizes the situation. She sees an opportunity for her to have a relationship that she would want, and she goes and gets it. And he's like, whoa, I don't know. And she's like, no, let's make this happen. And then she does. I mean, it's her will that drives so much of this film. I love it. Yeah, she definitely is the reason most of, most of the action in the film takes place is is Judy. Not even Judy and Phil. It's just Judy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, um, it, it, Judy number one, Phil number two, Betty number three, Bob number four. <laughs> Poor Bing Crosby. They but like, but again, like if I if before we have this conversation and we start to take it apart, if you said who's the main character in White Christmas, I think maybe it's just because of the force of Bing Crosby and the association of Bing Crosby with that song, you just automatically say, Well, it's Bing Crosby. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's White Christmas, it's Bing. And he does have a role, and I do think that his presence balances makes the film feel very balanced. Uh, but nothing happens in this film without Judy and without Phil. All right, so going back to our discussion of Katniss, he's a reactor, not an actor, uh, as we kind of oh, discovered, yeah, discovered that yeah. Katniss was in The Hunger Games. When we, It was another one of those where like the discussion made us realize something we didn't know going in. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't see it as... Uh, so I don't see um, Phil's nervousness, all, sudden <laughs> kind of fear when he realizes what happened. Uh, I don't see that as contradictory to his character. I think it just tells us something more about his character which is we thought that he was you know totally comfortable with uh, with himself and with uh, his ability to relate with women and we realize that this guy has some serious insecurities himself <laughs> and some stuff that he's working through and that maybe he's projecting his own insecurities onto bob um and, and that he's got some stuff to work through himself and it gives us a really great comedic scene 
Oh man, that scene when she's when she's coming on to him. And yeah, and she's like, "You are gonna have to pretend to be my fiance." <laughs> if only there were someone <laughs> yes, that if... would that would get engaged to me. And he's like, "Well, we're all the way up here in Vermont. Who there's could possibly?" No, there's no humans here other than you and me, <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know the hundreds of cast and crew that we brought up. <laughs> and then, but the other scene where Danny Kaye just kills it is with the. Um, with when he falls down the stairs and he's trying to get the the general to to not go and watch the tv that that comedic acting is just brilliant my kids were in stitches <laughs> watching it today it's very funny all right any final notes on white christmas before we wrap this up my my grandfather grew up in a small logging town in northern california and when I look at when I watch White Christmas, it just reminds me of uh, old pictures of my grandparents when they were young, and my parents were little kids. And there's something really—I know it's easy to look back at the 1950s and think of all the things that were wrong, <laughs> but there was there is the, I do have a, like a, a super soft spot for that period and. Um, and this film especially it's just awesome i love it yeah this is my favorite christmas film it's one that kind of brings in the holiday season for me uh every year this one needs to be on early on when we're transitioning into saying okay it's not fall and it's not winter it's the holiday season now (laughs) it's where we're at uh white christmas helps helps to do that for me now we got to ring in a little early this year yeah yeah because we're doing this podcast hidden blessings of doing this podcast (laughs) Count them. <laughs> count those blessings. Let's count those blessings. All right, listeners, uh, we would love also uh, if you would like to tell us your favorite Christmas stories in the comments under this. It'll help us to maybe choose some of the topics we'll talk about next year. So if you want to tell us a favorite Christmas film or uh, Christmas novel, particularly, we did Christmas Carol last year, and <laughs> we're kind of out <laughs> of Christmas novels, Christmas, Christmas comic book, or <laughs> yeah. Um, let us know what some of your favorite Christmas stories are and we may try and get those into the rotation in 12 months when we're doing some more Christmas stories. And also just throwing this out there, we are still not yet at 100 uh, reviews or ratings on iTunes and we are waiting on that to release our spinoff podcast episode by episode of Grand Hotel. Uh, we've definitely had an uptick. Yes, we have gotten more. We need more, more. <laughs> But uh, many more. We can get some more uh, episodes in the can <laughs> while, while we wait. Yes. <laughs> so that but, we'll... but we are excited for that to get out there. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And as producer Andrew said, leave us a review there. That really helps us out. If you are a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13. So our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you like this episode, you may enjoy checking out episode number 51, in which we talked about the film Elf. Uh, Or you may also want to go look at episode number 47, when we talked about the film While You Were Sleeping. Links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and that's also where you can find a list of all of our old shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're all also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good discussions there with our listeners, and would love for you to come by and give us any comments or feedback 
piggybacks there. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways that you can do that, and you know you want to. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to the support link on our homepage or just going directly to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but you get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. I didn't just get the hiccups. <laughs> so I just <laughs> the image of the horse driver <laughs> sitting sitting on the sleigh board, just looking out. I'm sorry. Okay, save it, save come, it for the right. Christmas stuff. Oh man! Oh boy! <clears throat> How many movies are gonna have a horse named Snowflake in this year's Christmas special? <laughs> I'll give you a dollar if you can work it into every single one of your pitches. <laughs> no, the thing is, one of your titles is just going to be vague enough that one of us is going to pitch our postmodern side story of White Christmas with that. Oh, man. Okay.